0: I think if you were to do a strictly clinical career, you would burn out much, much faster than if you had all these other projects on at the same time. So being busy with other things is protective for burnout. Like we Mm -hmm. don't go to med school because we want to follow orders. Um, But somehow that's what ends up being our clinical life. So (laughs) that's why people burn out.
1: Welcome to the Physician Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland. I'm a licensed pharmacist and fourth-year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. As this podcast has grown, we've had the tremendous opportunity to broaden our scope and explore other non-traditional pharmacy careers or other medical careers. The PharmD opens so many doors, and by listening in, you will have the opportunity to learn from experts in the field on how to start your journey today. Before we start with today's interview, I'd like to announce that we are actively searching for new guests to interview on the podcast. If you think you have a unique story or interesting life experience related to medicine, pharmacy, or business, please reach out for the potential to be a guest on the show. Today, we have the privilege of hosting an extraordinary guest, Dr. Kat Schmalley, a first generation immigrant, U.S. Air Force veteran, and current fourth year medical student at UCLA. Dr. Schmally is not only a problem solver, but also a force for change in the healthcare landscape. Dr. Schmally's journey is fueled by a mission to address the challenges surrounding rare and genetic diseases. As the founder of Zebra MD, she aims to provide evidence-based specialty care anywhere, transcending geographical barriers. In this episode, we'll explore Dr. Shmali's military experience, her aspirations to attend the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and the inspiring story behind Zebra MD. She's a proven trailblazer committed to making a difference in the lives of those affected by rare genetic diseases, as well as a savvy entrepreneur with insight on in how to start your own business in the technological sphere. Join us today as we discuss the intersection of healthcare, technology, and compassion. Alrighty, welcome to the show today. I appreciate you coming on.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time.
1: All righty. So, you know, let's take things way back. Where, when, I guess, like, where are you from and what brought you to the U.S.?
0: Yeah, so I'm originally from Austria, um, as maybe you can tell by my uh, interesting accent. Uh, I was going to ask if I'm from South Africa, Australia, which I guess sounds similar. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I grew up there uh, and I left the second I turned 18. Um, And I booked a one-way ticket to the U.S. And I had a couple of suitcases with me and that was about it sort of like a rough idea, not really an idea of what I wanted to do, but um, mm, quick backstory to how it is growing up in Europe. Yes, it is. Uh, there's a socialist system. It's very safe. Everything is paid for. You never have to worry about, you know, being on the streets, um, not having medical care, all these kinds of things. So, however, the downside of that is that there's limited options, right? So if you don't want to pursue traditional paths, you um, then there isn't really room for you. So there isn't an opportunity to just fund found a company. Like you can't just have a company. You can't just um, do a job that you would like to do. You have to have certain degrees for it and you can only go to school once and get it paid for. So there's restrictions in place. Um, and growing up, nothing in the traditional Korea um, realm of Austria was really interesting to me. Um, And I wanted to do something bigger and the world seemed so interesting. And I was like, I need to get out out of there and have a look around and see what's out there. Uh, The only thing that at at the time I was sort of good at was horse training. Actually, it was my very first career. (laughs) Um, And so my justification for leaving Austria was, well, I have to pursue a degree in equine science, which didn't exist in Austria at the time. So that makes sense to everyone. Then it's a good justification, right? So I uh, applied for student visa um, to pursue equine science at a junior college in California. Mm-hmm. Um, I got the visa. Um, it was good for two years. I moved over there, um, and so that's I kind of got stuck there, and I'm still here now. So <laughs> now an American citizen. So I guess it worked out for the better. But yeah, for the first uh, few years of my adult life, I was a horse trainer. Yeah.
1: Wow, that's that's so interesting. So you you came over here at eighteen years old. Uh, did you have family here too, or what, no. you went totally by yourself? Wow, yeah. So you you really went out on a, a limb to to kind of explore and follow your passion. So I love that.
0: Yeah, you got to try, you know.
1: Okay, so you were a horse trainer for a few years, and then what led you to kind of getting into the the military career?
0: Um, there were several things that happened at the same time. One, I started to realize that um, I was alone in the U.S. I didn't have a safety net to fall back on. I didn't even have something like, what happens if your car breaks down or your fridge stops working? Whom do you call, right? Like everyday things. Um, I wanted some additional support. I was looking for a community. I'm a very team-oriented person. Um, and at the same time, I also sort of started to get bored with my horse business because I... I founded my own business. I built it up from scratch. Um, It was fairly successful. Um, I became a British dressage um, instructor and then judge. And there wasn't anywhere else for me to go. And I thought, well, there must be something else out there that isn't a traditional pathway. Like what crazy things can I do that are outside of the norm, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I saw a documentary once about the Royal Special Forces and the Royal Navy in, in Great Britain, and I thought to myself, boy, that ticks all the boxes. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can do that. And I applied and um, and I got into the Air Force, um, uh, passed the medical, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I ended up being an aeromedical flight uh, medic, basically. It's called Aeromedical Flight Evacuation Technician. Um, and I did that for six years. Um, I really liked it. I loved the social and community aspect. I loved the crazy things you could do, we always, you know, as much as we uh, complain every day about all kinds of different things, such as the hierarchy that is so outdated and needs to be changed, um, (laughs) we also were aware of the fact that even the most boring day in our military life was more exciting than the most exciting day of a civilian, right? (laughs) And so it was, I mean, I can't compare it to any other experience that I have ever had or might have in the future, I got out in the end after my 6 year contract um due to a variety of reasons but the biggest one was that um in my last year I had two back to back situations where um uh, I can't, I got really really close to not making it <laughs> I was like, You know, we've seen Final Destination. If I fly a third time, this is not going to go well for me. So I think it's time for me to get out. And it was right around the time where I got married. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to start medical school. And so I thought, well, this is, I think this is the end of this chapter. So, um, and I got out and started medical school.
1: Wow. I, definitely a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I want to say thank you for your service. That's that's incredible. So you were six years in the military and were you, did you travel overseas at all or were you like yeah. locally based? Wow, that's that's yeah. incredible. What countries were you in? Can you disclose that or
0: <laughs> top um, secret? Oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, we flew all over the place. Um, so one of the things that you can do, uh, this is also something notable probably for us as in the... MD student and physician community is that you don't need to uh, be an active duty member to get all the experiences and benefits of active duty. So I originally enlisted in the US Air Force Reserves and I got attached to active duty units through active duty orders, which is something you can do. It has the benefit that you can choose the base you want to work out of and be permanently stationed at, which is usually the base closest to your home or a base that has a particular team that you would like to join a a certain type of job, for example. Um, and then from that unit, you do your missions and go overseas and get temporarily attached to other places. Uh, so it's very flexible. And as a reservist, you can pick and choose your missions and pick and choose your active orders. Um, you can be stationed in, um, in you know, Saudi Arabia for a while, Japan. Um, I was in a flying unit. So we, w- we had what's called TDYs, uh, which is, a few days to a few weeks to a few months of temporary duty um, that could take you anywhere in this world, wherever you wanted. it. Um, and I was, I, was, I was getting around. <laughs> that, that's not so fun. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. That, that's incredible. And so I guess like as like an aeromedical flight medic, I can imagine you're taking care of some of the sickest patients, you know, uh, the most like acutely ill individuals at the time. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about like what that experience was like for you?
0: Um, yeah. So, um, the majority of the job is training. So, uh, you train and train and train to the point where if you get woken up in the middle of the night after not sleeping for seven days and it's dark and you have no idea what to do, you could still do your job. Right. So it had to be so ingrained in you that no matter the external circumstances, you would be able to carry out the mission. So there's extreme amounts of training in any kind of circumstance. For example, um, we have to train in an airplane, in and out of the airplane, in a uh, suit that is completely covering us in, ter- in case there was a chemical attack on us, for example. And we still had to care for patients. And we had limited viability, uh, visibility. We had like a, um, uh, a gas mask on. We had those giant rubber boots. Um, it was so hot, like everything, because they had to be completely shut off from the outside air, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you still have to do your job in that scenario and in that situation even in the middle of the summer. So um, that was a, lots of fun in hindsight, you know, not that fun when you're doing it in a moment, but um, it helps you to do a great job when you are on an active mission and things go south, which they do, because when you are on a medical unit, uh, you get targeted first a lot of the time um, because, you know, a- enemies, I want to say quote enemies, you know, they, um, they don't play by the books. Um, yes. We have a Geneva convention. Yes. We have a rule book that, we try to adhere to as U.S. military, but other countries, especially terrorist organizations, do not play by those same rules. So um, you have to be aware of the fact that you are a target, because if they can take out a medic, they can take out many more people than just that one medic, because now you have taken out the healthcare for that unit. Right. So mm-hmm. um, so you have to be careful and your job is important and uh, people rely on you to do it properly and to not freak out yourself. Um, and you can't lose it. So uh yeah, you you learn how to manage your emotions and compartmentalize and develop
1: uh
0: strategies to deal with it with dark humor, which is <laughs> useful in a medical setting when you go to medical school and residency. So yeah.
1: Absolutely. And so I guess like that's a perfect transition right there. So is that what kind of prompted you to want to pursue medicine in the first place?
0: Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, I've always hated medicine actually when I was growing up, um, (laughs) because (laughs) in Austria, the medical community is terrible. Okay. So here's an example of the, yes, it's free healthcare. Okay. Yes, it's free. Um, but the quality of it, you know, there's a price to pay as always. Nothing's free, right? Technically. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was a kid and my horse bucked me off. Um, and I was like, I think 11 or 12. Um, and I fell onto a fence post, um, And I couldn't breathe and couldn't walk and couldn't get up. And I was just like lying there for quite some time, like, and then a neighbor saw me and she was like, oh my God, oh my God. She called what is the equivalent of 911 um, and spoke to the dispatchers. And they were like, well, is she still breathing? Yeah. Well, then it's not an emergency. So we don't, we don't come, you know, we have to bring yourself to the emergency room. Um, My neighbor didn't have a car. So now we had to wait for my mom to come home from work. So it was 5 p.m. at that time. Had the accident roughly around 11 a.m. Uh, so we finally get to the ED. Um, I wait and wait for hours and hours. I finally get seen and it was an old white dude, super mean, really rude, no bad matters at all. Um, and he was like, so what happened to you? Okay. Uh, try to stand up. Okay. You can still stand up. You don't need an extra. You can go home. <laughs> so that was the extent of the physical exam and the, uh, the total visit of my emergency room time in Austria. So, um, I didn't want to participate in that system. Um, but then I got to the u s and I started to figure out that, hey, the system here works differently. um people are not quite as bad as in in the Austrian healthcare system um and what so I struggled with not uh to i struggled with being the bottom, I guess it sounds really bad, but like <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to understand why we got these orders, right so like the physicians seem to make the orders, they seem to tell us what to do and create the algorithms of treatment. And even though we had a lot of leeway in the military as a medic, you don't necessarily have a legal scope of practice as you have in the civilian world. Um, you can not really get sued for things. And Austin, you are the only medical person there is. So you can mm-hmm. do whatever you think is necessary. Our rules were you can do whatever to save life, limb, or eyesight. Um And so that was great, but I still wanted to know more. I wanted to figure out why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why do we have these rules in place? Um, And so that's why I decided to go to medical school to find that out myself.
1: Wow, and you obviously have quite a bit of training to, to, I guess, make yourself very well qualified to apply to medical school. So what was that experience like for you? Now I saw that you applied to UCLA and that's where you're currently at. That's like one of the top five you know programs in the country. So you, you obviously did the right things to, to get in there. So can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and like the admissions process?
0: Yeah, so I'm laughing cause actually I did not think that way. Uh, I didn't have a great experience with um, applying to medical school. I know it was hard to get into. Um, and my i had a low mcat i actually took it twice okay so the first time was like really bad I it's like i can't apply i can't even apply to dl schools with this but also granted i didn't study for it it was like i'm going to take it and see what happens how does the test look like i was the um, same way <laughs> oh yeah see <laughs> yeah, it's, i, I think way. it's helpful to take it twice cuz then you have an idea of, of what it actually is asking for Um, I found that very helpful. so a year later, I took it again, again, didn't study for it because I had a plan to study, but I was like, you know, I'm busy, I'm flying missions, i like, whatever. So then I took it again, it was doing marginally better. And I was like, you know, I'll just fly, let's just go for it, whatever. And I didn't get the interviews that I thought I would for the schools that I thought was a good fit and really wanted to get into. Um, And UCLA was at the time, the highest ranked program um, that offered me an acceptance Um, I wanted to go to Texas originally because I really liked the schools that I interviewed there. Um, The community was great. uh, And it was small towns, great quality of life. And I had just gotten married at the time and thought to myself, well, I want a safe place for, um, you know, to raise my family. Um, And I told UCLA I was about to turn them down. I was like, you know, I really like the cost of living there is just too high for me. Like, yes, mm-hmm. I have my GI bill that actually paid for my med school. This is not a benefit of going to the military. <laughs> um But, like, still, there's like 70 grand a year cost of living alone. And then the tuition at the time was like roughly 40 grand ish. Now it's like, I think, close to 60 or 70 grand a year, even <laughs> for in states. <laughs>
1: it's a lot higher.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, listen, I can't. So um, I emailed uh, the dean at the time and I didn't hear anything back. And then, like, right before we had to make decisions on acceptances, he emailed me back with, okay, I will give you this scholarship. I will give you a full tuition scholarship, because of tomorrow, and also all these other scholarships if you come. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Twist my arm.
0: <laughs> oh, no, fine, I'll do it. And so I ended up at, um, at UCLA, which ended up being the right decision because um, in my course of my studies here, they changed the step from the step one from graded to pass-fail. And mm-hmm. we were the first class that had to take pass-fail. And it was a little bit unknown how that would affect your residency applications. The fear was that um, it, the school name would matter more now. So now it would be more important where you go rather than how much you study for your step and what your step sc- two score might be. And I heard rumors about that when I first applied to med school. And I thought to myself, I think it's better for me to choose a higher ranking school for that reason, than a school that I actually wanted to go to, because I needed to make sure that I had options after med school. At least that's what I was thinking at the time. Uh, Now I have different opinions going through the residency interview process. But (laughs) yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up here.
1: Wow, that, that's awesome! And we could have a whole podcast just talking about like the logistics of like step one going past fail. Um, there, there's a step lot. Step also going
0: to go past fail. So I
1: know that's that's the yeah. next big thing. But when mm-hmm. when are they going to do that? Is the real question. Uh, it's too bad they didn't do it when we were doing it because uh, I didn't want to have to take that test.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I think I postponed it like seven times, and you have to pay a, a fee for it every time you postpone. I mean, they got a lot of money from me in that in that spring so yeah
1: exactly exactly um and for our listeners just so they understand um so step one step two and step three those are the licensing boards it's similar to like the naplex or any kind of like national licensing board except it's a little different where you actually take it throughout medical school you take step one in the middle of like your didactic portion before you transition to clinicals and then you take step two um once you finish like your third year clinicals right before you apply to to residencies um, so, and those are pretty, pretty large, long tests. I think uh step two is like nine hours, nine and a half hours or so. Um, so I, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> It
0: was hard. I was pregnant at the time when I took step two. I was seven months and I couldn't push out my step two any longer because I was like, "I tired until this new baby comes. So I just had to, I had to go pee like every 20 minutes. I had to take a break. Oh my God. It was nerve wracking. I'm so glad it's over.
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. What am I complaining about? You had it way worse. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so how has medical school been for you? Um, Especially like transitioning into the civilian world?
0: Uh, yeah, good question. Um, Well, sort of, uh, maybe in a good way, you know, COVID happened at the same time. <laughs> I mean, there is silver linings to COVID, right? So one of them was that uh, the, tra- the pre-clinical curriculum of our school transitioned to uh, remote for like 9% of the time, which was great because that would mean that I wouldn't have to go into actual school and I could just watch recorded lectures at home at 2x speed, and then have the rest of the day free. So it was really nice for like the first year and a half. Um, and then we started to go back in person and clinical started. Um, so LA is huge, right? So something mm-hmm. that didn't really dawn on me before I moved here. Um, Uh, UCLA has several hospital systems that they incorporate and they want you to rotate through as both a medical student as well as a resident, there's a lot of commuting involved, um, which was a major downside for me as I discovered and now that's affecting the residency programs that I'm willing to go to (laughs) for residency, (laughs) like I cannot commute across the city 10,000 times, that's a no. That's right. Yeah, definitely not. Um, I ended up, because of that geographical reason, I ended up doing most of my clinical time at a small county hospital called Oliveview, which I never thought of I would like so much. When I first started med school, I was like, yeah, why wouldn't you want to rotate at Reagan, you know, the fancy university hospital where we do like cutting edge transplants and like all this cool stuff. And I thought, why would anyone choose to go to a county hospital that makes no sense and then i started to work at the county hospital because it was the closest one to me and mm-hmm. i love it i love the patients the population i love the fact that i can actually really help a person um and now in comparison to like going to a university hospital i have to say i have a significant preference for patients that um the are of the population that we see at all of you which are typically like it's a safe net hospital right so um Patients that don't have insurance, that don't speak English, that maybe don't have immigration papers, that come from all walks of life, probably have never seen a physician before, um, and maybe come from countries where there is significant endemic disease still of things that have been eradicated in the U.S. And so you see things that all of you that you never would get to see otherwise. Um mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that aspect. So that has really shaped, I think, the future of my career because I now know that clinically this is sort of the patient population that I would like to work with.
1: That's fantastic. I, I love to hear that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those things like where, yeah, like you were saying, like those big academic programs, you kind of miss some of those like those more intimate patient interactions. And so it sounds like you have like a wonderful experience doing all of that. And so yeah. you mentioned that it shaped like your career path. So, what kind of like profession are you looking to uh, apply into for residency?
0: Um, so, I'm applying for internal medicine. Um, I applied both categorical uh, primary care tracks as well as programs that are called physician scientist tracks. Uh, what those are are that. Um, Usually, uh, it used to be that if you wanted a certain fellowship and you already knew at the time of residency applications, you could apply for both the residency program as well as your fellowship program at the same time and Mm -hmm. have some paid research years sandwiched in between. Um, so the benefit of those programs is that often your am the internal medicine part of the residency, gets shortened from three years to two years. Then you have mm-hmm. one to two years of paid research time, and then you start your fellowship um, where you continue your, your research throughout. And after completing the program, you are sort of expected to stay on as faculty, um, and you're expected to apply um, for a K grant, for example, to have funding to establish your own lab, um, and you end up working in a... 80 20 ish usually capacity so that means 80% of your time is research and 20% of your time is clinical um so that is something that I learned off in my last late third year (laughs) I wish I would have known about this earlier I could have maybe like um you know uh made my my residency application a little bit stronger for these types of programs and maybe Mm -hmm. um investigated the the variety within those programs a little bit more Uh, because the Physician Scientist program is very different from institution to institution. I would highly recommend if anyone is interested in those uh, programs to contact the program directors of those institutions directly um, and ask for a meeting. They will meet with you. They are always very excited to have potential resident applicants um, because they only usually take like between one and six a year. So it's a small cohort and they shape the education specifically for the applicant. Um, And you need to make sure that uh you go to a program where they do your type of research or they have support for your type of research um and they have sort of your if you're interested in a fellowship they have that fellowship and the particular sub niche in that in that fellowship that you want to go into like let's say you're interested in cardiology you have to do i m cardiology and then within cardiology maybe you like e p p or transplant or something else um so there's niches you can carve out for yourself um however, that being said. I am not sure yet about a fellowship a, a fellowship, myself. Um, you can apply without really knowing exactly what kind of fellowship you want, if any. Um, mm-hmm. You can just get paid research time after your IM years over. Um, some programs will allow you to uh, get an additional degree that they pay for during your research time, such as an MBA, an MPH, or PhD. Um, So there's lots of flexibility in those programs. I would highly recommend potential um, med school applicants to think about this early on in their career and reach out to these PDs and ask um, what the typical applicant looks like, uh, what is the current research that is done there. Um, And you can form collaborations early on. Networking is very important in this small field. They all know each other. Um, so if you want to have a good chance of getting accepted to one of those programs, um, start net- networking early. On, early on, make sure that these people know your name by the time your application comes across their desk.
1: Interesting, and that's something that I'm not super familiar with, um, like this, uh, you know, physician scientist. So it, uh, I guess, kind of like. Describe it in my own words. It's kind of a hybrid between being obviously a physician and being like a PhD applicant who does research all the time. Um, So it's more of a, I guess, like an opportunity where you're getting to do the best of both worlds in some sense. That's awesome. And so you said you're not sure what kind of fellowship you're looking to pursue yet. So um, is there anything if you had to choose today that you would like kind of lean towards? (laughs)
0: That's that's tough. So um, I actually applied for different tracks depending on the institution. Some institutions have um, uh, what I was originally interested in is to try to find a combination of IM and medical genetics, which is um, something that is uh, a knowledge base that I'm using for the company that I've started also. Um, Other programs don't have that option. Uh, Other programs have the traditional fellowships. And um, endocrinology was something that I might, that will potentially might choose Um, And then, again, other programs have even more flexible options where they don't require you to do a fellowship at all. Um, And they have uh, things like there's one institution that has a leadership residency program in uh, preventive medicine as a fellowship that also Mm -hmm. gives you an MPH MBA after. So there's various different options uh, and every institution would give you a different career path. That's why it's important to talk to them individually before you apply.
1: Absolutely. Well, well, best of luck with all of that. I'm excited to see where uh, you know all those career opportunities take you. Thank you. And, and I guess kind of transitioning to the next segment right now. Um, so on top of doing all of this stuff, um, and obviously your your long career in the military, and then obviously through medical school, you mentioned that you have an interest in genetics, uh, in particular. And so that's kind of like the I guess baseline for forming Zebra MD. So can you tell us a little bit about you know what this is exactly, and when you actually started it?
0: Uh, yeah so I never actually wanted to own a business. <laughs> <So> <laughs> like, again, a lot of I, headaches. You know, I know. A lot of headaches. You do it out of necessity. So um I uh was getting my application ready for residency and in the course of that you have to select certain sub is in your fourth year um to get evaluations for the specialties that you want to go into. And because at the time I had considered um doing a dual IM medical genetics program um i did some medical genetic surveys as well uh and i remember one of those in one of those clinics uh so this is how you have to imagine it. It's clinic-based, um, at least the rotations that I, I did. And you see like 20 different patients a day. They all have a different rare genetic disease. Um, and you really don't have time in between the patient appointments to look anything up. And these patient appointments can, they always go over time because they're so complex, right? There's so much to talk about. And um, you do like a video and uh, in-person visits, um, combination of those, phone visits, just touch base with other patients that were in your panel um and there was a patient that we saw who had pku which is an enzyme deficiency disorder that you're born with one of those inborn errors of metabolism that show up in step one everyone hates but yeah so i yes, was gonna say it takes the- me back <laughs> <laughs> right? ptc from this already oh. <laughs> uh i know um, and so What happens with that disorder is that it needs enzyme replacement on a regular basis, um, and you need blood draws for that in order to uh, kind of correct the enzyme level in your body to the appropriate level. And as you can imagine, that kind of sucks for the patient, right? They have to get regular blood draws and regular enzyme replacements, and these enzyme replacements are painful. They're uh, injections. Um, and they can cause all kinds of side effects. Also, and you accidentally overdo it, um, it has even more side effects. So it's hard to sort of like measure. Anyway, so we were seeing this one patient. He was he was uh, now eight or nine, so he had survived quite some time with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end of the appointment, when my attending uh, my attending, which is the supervising physician that you work with at the time, uh, was about to finish up, I was like on the computer behind him, like googling. You know, if there's anything like that, I need to know if I pick you. And I came across uh, the fact that there was a transdermal patch now, which can monitor enzyme levels um, and uh, can give you the accurate number that you need to replace these enzymes without having to do constant blood draw. Um, and that was just in a clinical clinical trial at the time. But that's something that uh, we didn't have time to look up before, and that sort of like sparked this idea of you know, wouldn't it be nice if I had something inside the chart that is like a little notification box that shows up and tells me, hey, this patient has PKU. Um, Here's the newest treatment for it. Here's a clinical trial that he qualifies for. Um, Here's how you need to manage it. Here's the most relevant research for this patient um, in the clinical context. That way, I don't have to look it up myself outside of clinical hours, and I can give the patient the most up-to-date treatment and care in the moment without, um, you know, losing them like six months down the line that they usually don't come back, you know, for another year in the medical genetics clinic. Um, And I talked to my attending about this idea and and he was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Can you make this for me? I'm like, I mean, I'm not a tech person, but probably, I mean, I can find somebody (laughs) who can. I don't know. So I did some uh, discovery with various tech developers um, all over the country Asked him about this at the like Is this possible? Is this technically possible to make? Um, and if so, theoretically, if I wanted to pay for it, how much would it cost? And it costs an extraordinary amount, of course, but it would be possible. So that's all that I heard. It's like, oh yeah, it's possible. Okay. So then uh, <laughs> I formed a company around it um and decided to make this myself with the help of my technical co founders, which are one of them is a the UCSF postdoc, um, and the other one is uh Gen AI engineer at Meta. Um, And with the UCSF folks, I've worked before. During my time at med school, I have made a machine learning algorithm that can detect um, rare genetic disease earlier in undiagnosed patients. Um, That was the first project we've done together that sort of created the baseline of oh wait there is research out there that's different from just basic science research there's actually other stuff you can do in medicine that have a direct clinical application right it's mm-hmm. not just oh yeah you found this cool new molecule after 10 years of bench science research great <laughs> you know that's what I thought was was research right I mean that's all that I had knowledge of. And so that sort of sparked this idea of machine learning algorithms, fixing things directly in clinical practice that are clinical pain points and using data we already have. So I don't have to make anything new or like do years of study to find something new. Um, We can utilize the resources that we already have more efficiently. Um, And so now we have Zebra MD. Um, We got picked by UCSF Ventures as an official spin out company um, because we share um, three patents with them that were developed in our previous algorithm study with them. Um, And uh, we are going to be at the World Medicine Precision Health Conference in Silicon Valley in January 23, 24. If anyone wants to come by and say hello, we are at the UCSF booth. so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're just starting. We're building our MVP. We have a clickable prototype. It's super exciting. I had no idea that owning a company could be so much fun and also be actually useful for my patients and my clinical care those two things are not mutually exclusive and I think that's something very important to point out because there's this perception that um at least where I'm you know where I go to school that you have to choose between clinical career maybe research career if you're in a large academic center Or non-clinical career, which is you don't do any medicine at all. Like you are a trader, right? (laughs) So you go to industry, you're a trader. We'd never talk to you again. So, um, but but there's like hybrid options. Like there's so many other things you can do. I can do part-time clinical care. I can run my business that improves patient care on a greater level than just one patient at a time. It can solve your everyday clinical problems with existing resources we already have. And I can do research to develop more of these tools that we can use to make healthcare more affordable and improve patient outcomes. So you can combine your interests and make your unique career path too.
1: Wow. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, too, as well. I mean, that's just incredible. So, you obviously recognize that there is this missing link in healthcare. And I think there's a lot of these like inconsistencies and like, areas that we see every single day that could be improved but yet we don't know how to take the first step or make that initial like assessment so it's it's really cool that you're able to recognize that and then take it to the next level where you sit down and say no i'm actually going to fix this now instead of complaining about it all day or whatever uh which i think a lot of people like kind of fall victim to including myself um, so I think that's so cool that you're you're able to kind of advance that. And so I, I'm curious to know how did you find like your your technical founders and like the these other individuals? Like you went out and found people who you, like you said, don't have any experience with coding per se, but you have the clinical background. So how did you go about like finding like this perfect team? Yeah,
0: so that um that can be tricky. I think that is something that a lot of non-technical people struggle with. Um, I got. I think I maybe just got lucky. Honestly, um, I can recommend uh various. So I started with a community called Health Tech Nerds, which I can totally plug because it's extremely and vastly helpful. It's like sort of a community similar to MD Plus, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm also part of. This is how we got connected uh, originally. Um, right. But Health Tech Nerds is much bigger and has um people from adjacent industries. Um. With all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, And so that's where it started out. I was like, hey, I have an idea. I can't code. What do I do? (laughs) And so people help you. They hook you up with contacts. I had a ton of meetings all throughout the summer with all kinds of people from everywhere in, the, in this world to sort of like understand where I had to go from here and where I can find the appropriate co-founders. And in the end I found both of them actually on the YC um, platform. So YC mm-hmm. Combinator, the Y Combinator is a, probably the most popular accelerator incubator here in the U S um, they uh, maybe don't wish, you know, this is going to, I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I'm just saying there's other accelerators, maybe consider uh, other funding avenues other than YC, because YC has a specific agenda and they tend to select companies that further that agenda, which makes sense because they want to make money, right? So it makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, But anyways, they have a co-founder matching platform, which sort of works like Tinder, but for uh, people that want to find each other to make businesses with. And so I found both of my technical co-founders on there within a short period of time. And you actually know right away whether or not you're a good match because um, you sent them your idea. You talk about um, how you imagine this and you ask them, do you have the technical skills to build it? Are you interested? Do you have the time to do it? Um, and if if you think you have the technical abilities, can you make me like a Figma or a mock-up or like a, a quick and dirty like prototype so I can see that you actually do have the skills before we decide to do anything further after this. Um, and usually like within that communication, you can recognize whether or not you're meshing with someone. If someone is understanding what you're saying without you having to explain it in 10,000 different ways, because you need to be able to have someone understand your vision, Right. Um, and that was something that I found the most challenging aspect when I looked for a technical co-founder. So many people say they're technical, but they're technical in different variations. And you mm-hmm. need to find the person that has the skills that you need for your specific project. So you need to date around a lot. <laughs> before <laughs> speed you dating be or something. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I um, yeah, could highly recommend that platform. And Health Tech Nerds is a great uh, resource for anyone starting out.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, health tech nerds. And actually, uh, you mentioned Y Combinator. Um, Derek Borkowski, he was uh, episode 14 that I actually interviewed him. He's creating an application for pharmacy individuals. It's called Clinical Pearls. Um, Pearls is the the actual full title, but same exact thing. He talked about like his experience going through the Y Combinator like subset, and it was a really interesting conversation. So if anyone's interested in checking that out, um, episode 14. Um, but additionally, that that's so incredible. So you kind of did this like speed dating opportunity where you would just like meet like multiple meetings throughout the same day or like throughout the whole summer and you just like kind of go over like the logistics of hey, this is what I want to do. Um, now, when you were setting up these meetings, would you have to like sign like NDA agreements to and send those out to every single individual or? I'm assuming so, right?
0: Initially, I did. I did with the large actual dev shops in my discovery phase when I tried to figure out was this even technically possible and how much would that cost. With these large companies, you want to have an NDA um, because it's possible that someone might poach your idea and is able to do it. If they're a large enough company, they have the resources to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so for that reason, um, they all have NDAs available. So you can just ask them for one and they will send you one. Um, For the co-founder matching, I. Thought about it originally and then was like you know what um after i realized that maybe my idea wasn't as easy to make as i had originally thought <laughs> i was like you know what you can try to make it yourself you want know, i'm not worried you can try to copy it good luck you know it's a little bit harder than you think you'll find out and so i i didn't require any 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 ndas um i just went off basic vibes you know in terms mm-hmm. of whom i was going to disclose to what i was planning on doing um and so far I've been lucky. I mean, so far there's no copy out there for C R M B yet.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome though. Um yeah, I'm kinda it's interesting you bring that up because I'm like kind of in the same process right now where I'm looking for like software developers for a novel idea um related to like medical school residency applications. And so mm. that's uh that's fascinating. We'll have to talk about it off the mic in a little bit. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: But um anyway, so this is so cool. So you started this business. Now what what kind of stage are you at right now? You said you have kind of found your developers and just a, a side note too, a lot of these developers charge like $25,000 like minimum. to so just to like get a base model going. Something and you mentioned Figma, that's kind of like a UX like um for individuals who who might not be familiar with Figma. It's like a platform that a lot of like you know, interface developers can kind of create a, a very nice, clean looking mock-up for like a website or a digital product or something like that. Um, so that's what, kind of at the stage right now where I was playing around with Figma a little bit myself. And I've, I've learned that I don't really know what I'm doing. So I need to kind of get to the next step and outsource a little bit further. Um, but so, yeah, anyway, so those developers can charge like $25,000, which is a crazy amount of money for for someone, you know, just out of, in med school who's still kind of drowning in debt at this point. So. Um, so how did you go about like kind of getting funding and getting like involved? Cause obviously once you join like a company like Y Combinator or other startup accelerators, don't you necessarily have to provide like some kind of equity? Is that something that you had to do in order to kind of get this off the ground?
0: Yeah. So, um, So there's different ways of doing it. I agree with you. This is the most challenging thing is to go from your idea to an MVP, which is a minimum viable product, um, which is something that investors will want in order to invest in your company. So you need to somehow make this MVP, which costs a lot of money, as you stated, before you even get an investment. So it's a catch-22. There's different ways to do it. You find a technical co founder who can do it for free. You have to give them equity. And most of the time, it's going to be a shared partnership because they're going to do all the heavy lifting for you. Yes, you have the idea, you have the connections and all that. But, um, technical, truly technical expertise that is what you need someone who can actually build the whole thing for you is very expensive. So, you have to value their time that they put in in terms of skills and uh, labor. Um, and you just have to, I have a equal partnership with, um, my two technical co-founders because I didn't want any kind of weirdness, um, you know, in, mm-hmm. amongst us. Um, we are a team, we do this together that way. Everyone feels like they have ownership, um, in some capacity and they actually care, um, what happens to the company. Um, and then for us med students and also for, I guess, general, the general populace, but something that's, um, open to us, and we have the resources at university, is something called SBIA STTR programs. Um, so this is a small business innovation research um, program that is a federal program. It's a non-dilutive grant that they give to small businesses. Um, and it starts at like 250 grand for a one-year project. And then you can get a follow-up grant for two to three million after that and various uh, federal agencies administer these grants. And um, so, for example, the NIH, the NSF, the DOD, any other federal agency, CDC, FDA, whatever you can imagine, they have their own SBA, STDR programs. Um, Each year, there's a different focus for each agency. They send out um, their, so to speak, like advertisements and say, hey, we have this new SBA coming up. This is the areas we are focusing on this year. If your company or idea falls within that scope you can apply um, and some programs some of those agencies make it easier than others uh, we applied for the NSF agency the National Science Foundation we applied in October uh, full disclosure we haven't heard back yet so uh, it takes a long time okay federal programs <laughs> like anything government related it takes a long time six months but, or something
1: like that right yes, or up yes. to a year
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah. You can apply for multiple at the same time, but you just have to disclose that in your cover letter. Um, so that's not a problem. Um, and they were a good match for us because they were looking for sort of exactly what we were making. Um, and they pay for ideas to be developed to the point of MVP. So this is how you can bridge the gap to get your MVP paid for if you didn't have any technical co-founders, for example. Um, and they have very helpful office hours every month. You can participate to learn how to write this grant, how to, sub- how to um, submit it. The NSF was more straightforward and easy. The NIH one that we are doing right now is a pain in the behind because it's the NIH. And as you can imagine, it's like a hundred paper instructions of like very plain government language. And it's like, Jesus, so, um, but it's doable. So actually your chances of getting funded are about one in three to one in four. Um, For just an idea, so that is, you know, it's an underutilized program. So I would recommend starting with that. Then also most universities have something called a venture fund, um, some type of accelerators if you have a business school attached um, that you can submit your idea to, uh, especially if you work with a faculty member, then your chances are usually higher. And especially, especially if you happen to have an idea that was developed Through the IP of your university, like through a prior research study or something, or through data that you got from the university, because that means there's shared IP, there's potential for patents, and universities really like that, and they will try to fund you. Um, And so that's how we got into UCSF Ventures, because we had those three shared patents with them. Um, through our scientific advisor that is uh, part of our company. Um, and so it's in their best interest that we are successful as a company because that means they can make money out of their patents and actually make a business out of it, right? Rather than just mm-hmm. keep a hold of the patents forever and then like, nothing happens. For them. <laughs> so there's resources available at your university. Start asking around there. And if not at your university, there might be at nearby or other universities um, that you could potentially collaborate with.
1: Wow. Tons of wonderful information in there. And I think like any like kind of pharmacy student, medical student, or any kind of like healthcare professional who's listening in should definitely check out all of those resources. Because if you have an idea, don't sit on it, because someone else will take that idea and run with it. So, you know, kind of take that leap of faith and, and jump on it. Um, And so additionally, I know we're getting kind of towards the end of our interview at this point. So I just have a few kind of final wrap up questions. Um, And so obviously, you're a very busy individual, you do do a lot, you're kind of balancing this like entrepreneurial side of things with like the clinical and healthcare, and obviously your medical school responsibilities. And burnout is obviously a major problem um, in medicine these days. So like, how do you insulate yourself from the effects of burnout on your productivity and overall happiness in healthcare?
0: Yeah, so I'm laughing because actually, uh, I think if you were to do a strictly clinical career, you would burn out much, much faster than if you had all these other projects going on at the same time. So being busy with other things is protective for burnout. Because what leads to burnout is you being a hamster in the hamster wheel that does the same thing every day. You're literally following like established algorithms, um, you plug and play basically, and you don't really practice medicine per se right like we Mm -hmm. don't go to med school because we want to follow orders um but somehow that's what ends up being our clinical life so (laughs) that's why people burn out there's so much else to unpack here but you know so in general um i would recommend get other projects and don't think of it as having to choose between only clinical or only non-clinical. You can do hybrids, make yourself happy that way. And also because the skills that you learn in one thing and the experience you have in one thing are directly applicable to the other thing, right? So like my clinical experience led me to um, have zebra md and my work at zebra md will make my clinical work more interesting and easier because I can solve my clinical problems with the tools that I'm developing.
1: Wow, that's excellent advice right there and i guess our follow up question to that is you know what is the most important lesson you've you've learned in your career that you wish you knew when you were starting out
0: um i think that you know what so in my first year of med school I, I was sort of like a little, I don't want to say snowflake because it has like a cultural uh, connotation to it, but I sort of was like lost in a storm when I first started med school. I was like, I don't know exactly what to do. I don't know what field to go into. Nothing sounds interesting. um no idea. So I, I came across this PhD um, that was working on a precision medicine database. And um, I talked to him about, you know, my worries and like, I didn't know what direction to take, uh, what research to do, what, you know. What specialty to pick? And he was like, listen, just because something doesn't exist yet doesn't mean that you can't make it yourself. And that has stuck with me to this day. And I I sort of maybe wish I would have acted on it sooner because I've been trying to fit into one of the pre-designated available paths that are made for you sort of in med school. There is like this, this, and this, and you choose between those, right? But mm-hmm. you don't actually have to choose. You can do what you want and make a new thing happen. Um, If I had sort of understood that earlier, I think I could have done even more than I have done now. I sort of came to all this very late in my medical career, Mm -hmm. and I, I think I would have maybe picked a slightly different path if I had my business earlier. Like, I would have pursued an MBA while still in med school because med schools can pay for that, so I don't have to. You know, worry about this myself or like do an MPH year, a research year for this kind of stuff that I I didn't know about these options and how they would contribute to my future career. So think about this early on that you don't have to stay with pre-designated paths.
1: I love that and it's funny too you mentioned like the the growth of the business and whatnot and as a fellow owner myself i think back like if i only had started this like three four years ago then you know think of the scale at which we'd be at at this point in time um but i know like that that's a work in progress of course but it's just it's kind of funny because i know things are going to get busier with residency and stuff i'm like oh no i'm not gonna have time as much time to work on this so if only i did more of it you know in medical school so I guess like having that awareness now, though. I mean, I'm I'm glad that I moved forward with it. I think all of our listeners should do the same. If you see one of those like insuffi- like insufficiencies in the medical care, think of a, a solution to it and then act on it. And I think that's the best thing you can possibly do because it's a net good to everyone else.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, the best uh, businesses are solving actual everyday problems. So think about what annoys you the most in your clinical life <laughs> and try to fix that because you will find a solution. Everyone will be grateful for it. So
1: absolutely all righty and so final question for the night what are your personal professional or business oriented goals that you'd like to accomplish in the next five to ten years
0: ah yeah that's also still up in the air since i've decided to forge my own path right so at the moment (laughs) right now i have to decide on what residency program to pick first like how to make my rank list that would then determine my uh my outcomes for my personal and professional life going forward because every program is a different location has different benefits pros and cons attached to it and a different training path for me so i hope that in five to ten years time i will have um hopefully maybe finish an additional degree i kind of have my eye on potentially pursuing something else i'm trying to decide between MBA or phd there's cool programs out there if you have your eyes open and you ask people you know, um what can I do with my interests? Because there's stuff out there. There's a PhD in in health innovations, for example, for MD specifically. So there's all kinds of cool things. So I hope that in 10 years time, I will have maybe not just one company, maybe more, maybe I'm going to go into venture capitalist uh, firms myself, and I'm going to be the one that helps to support other new startups to solve more problems than just that one problem that I'm tackling right now. So uh, so we'll see. I'm open. I'm open-minded.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, I love it. And yeah, that's that's like kind of like shooting for the stars. Like now you're at that other side of the fence right now, where like you are like begging for money to to kind of get like the program started, or like you're trying to, you know, kind of build your dream. And it's so cool to be like on the other side of things, where you're using the experience that you gained over those years to then help other companies kind of build their own dream themselves. So I think that's awesome. It's like the best way to give back.
0: Yeah, I think so too.
1: All righty. So we've come to the end of our interview today, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for the support. Do you have any additional questions about the medical school journey or entrepreneurial topics? Check out my website at www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, how can our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about you?
0: Uh, Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn uh, under Kat Schmolle, K-A-T-S-C-H-M-O-L-L-Y, or my company, zebramd.org. You can also email me at cat at zebramd.org.
1: All right, perfect. And those will all be linked in the show notes below. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today again, Kat. I really do appreciate your time. I know you're extremely busy. So I think we had a great discussion. And I think a lot of people will take a lot out of this.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Thank you.